Thank you. So this morning on New Year's Eve, I thought that uh, I would preach a, a New Year's prayer for us. And you can see as a title that ultimately it's to teach us to number our days. And our text this morning uh, will be found in Psalm 90, uh, which we uh, read from just uh, a little bit ago. Uh, just to give a little bit of background, uh, the book of the Psalms uh, is the longest book of the Bible uh, with uh, 150, would say, chapters, or if you want to say, probably more correctly, Psalms within the book of Psalms. Broken up into five separate books. Uh, you can see them listed there. Psalm 90 is the beginning uh, of the fourth book. And even though it's toward the last third or so of the book of Psalms, uh, we know that the book of Psalms are not organized chronologically. And that uh, this psalm that we're about uh, to read is actually the oldest uh, of all the psalms. And we know that because... Uh, this is the only psalm that uh, is uh, noted that it was written by Moses, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's right, what it says at the beginning of your psalm. And we seems that there is no dispute that it truly is uh, the Moses that we read about, uh, the Moses that uh, is the one who authored the Pentateuch, uh, the Moses who led uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, and for context purposes, uh, that is where we're going to start because uh, the thought is this is when Moses wrote uh, this psalm. I have listed uh, up here uh, uh, beginning in chapter 13, verse 25, but I'm going to read you a couple verses before that. Uh, chapter 13, verses um, 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel from each tribe. Uh, of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. And then we're going to pick up here, same chapter, chapter 13 of the book of Numbers, but verse 25. And this is just giving a context of this psalm. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness. Jumping down to verse 27, And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And this is, if you may remember, uh, Pastor Rubel preaching uh, Genesis chapter 6. There were the Nephilims that were considered to be giant-type people. Well, these were the, the, the descendants of Anak. So this is uh, whom they are speaking of. Continuing in chapter 14, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the swords? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
Jumping down, verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census, from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. Another. Brief description, a setting of the scene. It's found in Joshua chapter 5. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is the scene. This is the setting in which Moses wrote this psalm. Uh, Many uh, believe more specifically uh, that the time frame is probably Numbers 20, uh, where we see the death of his sister Miriam and the death of his brother Aaron. So within this setting, what stands out? And to me, Uh, There are two points that stand out. One, the packing of tents. Ultimately, they're wandering nomads, right? We read Romans, or Numbers 14.33, Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. And we see that this is first and foremost in the thought of Moses as he writes this psalm. Verse 1, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And the word that's used here for dwelling place is also in the Hebrew, uh, translated into refuge or shelter or habitation. One translation uh, states, Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. And isn't that true? whether we speak of Moses and the Israelites as they wander for 40 years or speaking of ourselves. The thing about it, first math problem, George, uh, for today, is that Moses spent a third of his life wandering in the wilderness. Is that hard to imagine? We know that he lived to be 120 years old. We know that he was in the wilderness 40 years. So our first math problem is a third, right? A third of his life was spent picking up 
packing up, moving to the next spot, setting down, staying there, picking up, packing up, moving to the next spot. And this was over 40 years. And we see that God provided for them. He truly was their dwelling place. God's pillar of cloud was their roof by day. And God's pillar of fire was their household light by night. Spurgeon, speaking of this passage passage specifically, and how it applies to us, said, If God loved me yesterday, he loves me today. For my unmoving mansion of rest is my blessed Lord. Even when my future prospects seem dim, my hopes are dashed, my joy is withered away, and all my possessions appear to be rusting and rotting away. Even then, I have lost nothing of what I have in God. Isn't that true? I'm sure some of us felt this way during the year that's just closing. We feel that our hopes have been dashed. We feel that our joy is withered away. We feel that our possessions are rusting and rotting away. And most likely some of us will feel this way in the new year as it comes upon us. But while we have a comfort of having a roof over our heads and food to eat on our table each and every day, our true comfort, our true dwelling place, our true refuge is found in God. So that's the first thing that we observe as far as the context of when Moses wrote this psalm, is that they were nomads, that they didn't have a home, that they were packing up their tent each and every day. And the second thing that we notice, as far as the content, is that they were burying the dead. We see that in Numbers 14, 29, 30. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Then the question is, well, how many people is that? And most commentators or commentators that we um, would um, read uh, all estimate that there was probably about 1 million to 1.2 million people died during this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they get that from this passage first in Numbers 2, the, the, the census that was taken. These are the people of Israel as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. If you go back, you'll see it's very specific based on certain tribes, how many people, certain tribes, how many people, and you add that all up and you get 603,000 men, those that are able to fight in battle that are 20 years and older. If you assume that two-thirds of those had wives, also excluded from this were the Levites that are specifically numbered at 22,000 people. So overall, conservatively, there were a million people that died during the wandering for 40 years. And George II math question or problem, divide that by 40 years, a million, you get 25,000 people a year dying. You divide that by weeks, you get almost 500 people a week. Again, that's just everything was even, but you just think about the burying of the dead. And this is where Moses is at as he's penning this psalm. 
probably just experiencing the death of his sister and the death of his brother. And I don't know about you, but the older that I get, my wife's not getting any older, I'm getting older. The older that I get, do you notice more and more people are dying around you? I know we had a week in which I think we went to three funerals within two days. Well, this is the setting. This is where Moses is. So with that background, Moses makes, I believe, two observations. One, God is eternal and self-existent, and man is not. And secondly, that God is a God of wrath and man is sinful. And then after that, we see his resulting petition. Teach us to number our days in order that we or they may obtain a heart of wisdom. So let's look at these two observations together. First, that God is eternal and self-existent. And if you were here this morning for Sunday school, we talked about the seity of, of God, meaning that he is self-existent, he is eternal, he is from beginning to end. And we see a number of verses. First, we see Moses here in this psalm saying, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And if you go down a couple verses to verse 4, A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night, and a watch in the night being a, a three-hour shift or possibly a four-hour shift during the night. And while figuratively, just think for a moment, and, and, and I only thought back, 500 years or so, Columbus discovering uh, the New World, the Protestant uh, Reformation, uh, the, the, the nailing of the 95 Thesis on the church in Wittenberg, the Great Awakening uh, that occurred in, in the early to mid-1700s. Forgot all of those are as yesterday. We see that God is not subject to time, but he is the one who created time. The question is, when did time begin? Also, if you look at Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning. Time began in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. That's whenever time began. For us, the, the, the measuring of time uh, occurred on day four, whenever he created the, the sun and the moon to separate the days. Another psalm of speaking of, of God being eternal and self-existent is found in Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Revelations 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Another similar verse in Revelations chapter 4, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Another quote by Spurgeon. Speaking of this passage says our measurements of time are nothing to God. 
There is nothing past, nothing future with him. All things are present in the eternal now of God. What a wonderful truth this is of the eternal existence of God and what boundless comfort it brings to the man who feels that this God is his God, his Father, his friend, and his all and all. The one who created time, who is not subject to time, this is the one that we call Abba Father. And as Spurgeon said, what, what a boundless comfort this should be to each one of us to know that he is our Father. And while God is eternal and self-existent, Moses' next observation is that we are not. We're not eternal. We're not self-existent. But instead, we were created. And we are finite. And we see that continuing in our passage. Verse 3 of Psalm 90, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Verses 5 and 6, you sweep them away as a, with a flood, and they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Verse 10, the years of life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet, they span, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. Again, Psalm 102, similar words. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Then James, James 4, verse 14. What is life? For you are a mist of vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So we see the descriptors, don't we? What is life here on earth for us? It's like smoke that passes away. It's like grass that has withered. It's like an evening shadow that fades or as James puts it, it's like a mist, a vapor, a fog. Our life on earth is like a, a, a morning fog that burns away by the sun. That's what our life is here on earth. I had the privilege of doing my mother's funeral. Uh, she uh, passed away at the age of 89, and I used this verse. What is your life but for you are a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes? And I was thinking this week as I was preparing um, and just thinking about my mother's family. She was one of five, and we just went to one of her sister's funeral probably two weeks ago. I think she died at 85. Uh, we visited uh, my mother's only living uh, relative, my Aunt Betty, and she is 96. The youngest uh, of my mother's family was uh, her only brother, her oldest brother, Bob. And uh, Bob passed away uh, in the Battle of the Bulge at the age of 21. So you think about that span, right? So my, my 
the youngest one within the family died at the age of 21. My Aunt Betty is still living at 96. But yet, in light of eternity, all of those lives are but a vapor. Whether you die at a child or die at 100 years old, it's all a vapor. One is no less of a vapor than another. Job, who lived a long life, described his own life as swifter than a weaver's shuttle, described it as a breath, as a shadow. He says, my days are swifter than a runner. My days flee away. Like a flower, my life withers. It flees like a shadow and continues not. And this describes all of our lives. And Moses noticed this, right? As he looked around and saw all the people of that age all passing away in the wilderness. So Moses' first observation is that God is eternal and self-existent, and we are not. That we were created and finite. And his second observation is that God is a God of wrath. And man is inherently sinful. By the way, this is not a nice build you up message, if you could tell already. But we'll get there. (laughs) And we see this in the next couple verses, verses 7 through 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Which that ought to be a scary thing. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So here's a summary of what Moses said in these verses concerning God being a God of wrath. says, we're brought to an end by your anger. Your wrath, we are dismayed. All of our days pass away under your wrath. Who considers the power of your anger, your wrath according to the fear of you? And we see that this isn't just an Old Testament God, but we also see this in the New Testament. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We also see in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know that God is a just God. That he is a God of wrath. And in addition to that, Moses observed and I'm sure easily to do, wandering with a group of people, especially as we already read how they grumbled and complained and had no faith. That man is sinful, inherently sinful. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the presence, in the light of your presence. And again, we see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It wasn't just of the Old. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And notice, Moses points out uh, the linkage between our sinfulness, sinfulness of man, and our finiteness here on earth. And we see that in verse 4. I, I mentioned I read it earlier from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and I, and I think it does a good job of re- referring not just return to man, but return descendants of Adam. You return mankind to the dust, saying, return descendants of Adam. Later, he says, for all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Our span or their span is but toil and trouble, and they're soon gone, and we fly away. So we see the connection. Moses sees that people are dying in the wilderness every day, probably by the hundreds. He sees that God is eternal. God is self-existent. We are not. He sees that God is just, that God is righteous, that God is holy, and that we are not. And he sees the linkage between our sinfulness and our future death. And we see that out of Genesis, don't we? The effects of the fall. Genesis 3. And to Adam... He, that being God, said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it. You were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Very similar to what Moses said, right? Verse 4, you return mankind to the dust, saying return descendants of Adam. And again, we see in other places the effects of the fall. Romans chapter 5, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. First Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So as Moses begins his prayer, and he does so in in a fashion which we ought to do, uh, he recognizes who God is. You think about the the um, um, the acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. He praises God for who He is. He recognizes who God is. He then confesses the sin, and we see as a result of that comes his petition. This petition is found in verse 12. In later verses, we're only going to read verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. May recognize that we're finite. 
Maybe we recognize we only have a certain number of years here on earth. Maybe we recognize that we are sinful and you are holy. And as a result, teach us to number our days. So are we to literally count our days? Another math problem there, George. I counted mine to be 21,262 days that I've been here on earth. But that's not what Moses is saying. Psalm 39, I think, is saying what Moses is saying. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. King James says how frail I am. The NASB says how transient I am. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says how short-lived I am. But I like the word fleeting. Isn't that kind of a picture for you? It's just going by, right? Our lives are fleeting. Again, similar to James. Our life is but a vapor. So the question is, why is Moses praying that we are to number our days? Why am I teaching that we are to number our days? What does that mean? And I have three quick points of application. Point number one, be assured of your salvation. Second Peter 3, verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It sounds very familiar, right, to what Moses said. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should seek or reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the question is, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in him and in him alone? 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says that we are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. The first question this morning is, are you in the faith? Don't be like the rich man in the parable that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12. And he, that being Jesus, told them a parable, saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have an, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So first be assured of your salvation. Second, lay up your treasures, our treasures in heaven. 
We see that in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So our treasure is not to be the things of this world. Shouldn't be seeking after and just growing and growing our treasures because we find out that they provide no satisfaction at all and they are all fleeting. But we're to treasure most of all the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is our treasure, we'll commit our resources, our time, our money, our talents to his work in this world. As Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we're to lay up our treasures in heaven. A quote by John Chrysostom. It's funny, I, I, I was telling them this morning on a ride over that you see names or you see words and you don't know how to pronounce them. This is one I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. So I looked online to, you know, how to pronounce things and they run this little clip of like eight different pastors all pronouncing his name differently. (laughs) So I feel comfortable that whatever I say, I'm as good as the other eight that tried to mention it. But here's his quote. Uh, He's from the fourth century, maybe the fifth century. Speaking of laying up our treasures in heaven, we are only temporary guests on earth. We recognize that the houses in which we live serve only as hostels on the road to eternal life. We do not seek peace or security from the material walls around us or the roof above our heads. Rather, we want to surround ourselves with a wall of divine grace and we look upward to heaven as our roof. And the furniture of our lives should be good works performed in a spirit of love. So again, that's the question. What are we living for as we are here for just a short time? Are we building up our treasures here on earth? Or are we storing them up in heaven where Neither rust nor moth doth corrupt nor thieves break through and steal. So first, be assured of your salvation. Second, lay up your treasures in heaven. And then third, set your mind on things above. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So then the next question should be, how do we set our minds on Christ above? What does that look like? He goes on to say, next couple of verses in Colossians chapter 
3. This is how we set our minds on things above. First, we put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says, positively, what we're to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the question is, are we putting to death the things of the flesh? And are we putting on the things of God? Two more quick slides and we will be done. As this is a time in which people make resolutions, usually it's around exercise and around food and around health and habits to break and habits to start. Here are just a a few of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions that he was resolved to do. There's six of them here. First, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. Second, to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Third, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Fourth, to live with all my might while I do live. Fifth, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life, if Christ was to come. And then sixth, I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. So maybe not have regrets. May we live a full life of laying up treasures in heaven. May we live a full life of setting our minds on things above. i close with um, a quote. I think as we enter uh, into the new year, um, this would be good for us to reflect on. I don't know the author of it. Um, I stumbled across it in some of my one of my readings, but it's pretty simple, which I like simple. Remember the brevity of life, the weight of eternity, and the worth of Christ, and then live accordingly. And may that be our prayer as we enter into this new year. With that, uh, let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, this now afternoon. We thank you for our time together. We pray, Father, that our worship has been pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that we've rightly divided the word of truth. We pray, Father, that we would be more than mere hearers of the word. But that, as James says, may we be doers of your word. I pray, Father, for the salvation of each one here. I pray, Father, that if there are any that are not saved, may today be the day. May we see that our life here on earth is but a vapor, like a morning fog that burns away with the sun. Therefore, may we examine ourselves. And Father, may we know that we are saved, that we are your children, that we will spend eternity in heaven with you. And Father, while here on earth, may we lay up our treasures in heaven. Pray, Father, that we would give of our time and of our talents and of our money to you and to your work here on earth. Not that you need it, but Father, ultimately for your glory. And Father, may we set our minds on the things above. And as we close, may we remember the brevity of life, the weight of eternity, and the worth of Christ. And as people see our lives, may they see that. So we pray, Father, for strength as we go about this new year. We ask for your hand to be upon us. We ask for your blessings. We thank you, Father, for keeping watch over us. We thank you, Father, for providing for us each and every day as you have. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for us. And again, Father, we thank you most especially for providing for us eternally through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Father, it is in his wonderful name, his matchless name, in which we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.